Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Gene Trowbridge. Gene has been in the commercial and investment real estate business continuously since 1972 and in the legal profession since 1996. As a former syndicator who for 10 years raised investor capital, he served as a sponsor of 16 investment groups by raising equity from investors through registered representatives in the broker-dealer community, once sending out over 1,600 K-1s in a single year. So thank you so much for being on the show, Gene. Well, you're welcome, Charles. We're all working virtually, and you might hear a dog barking in the background. I hope that doesn't uh, annoy us too much. You never, you never know. But thanks for having me. So you have a very interesting background, being on pretty much both sides, I guess you would say, almost of the syndication spectrum. And uh, how did you get involved with real estate investing and syndications back in the 70s? Just like all syndicators got involved, I found a place of real estate that I didn't have enough money to buy my by myself. So I needed to get some investors. And I reached out to uh, three guys I'd gone to college with and put together a deal. And that was the start. That was the start of all of it. Interesting. And so uh, tell us about your law firm right now, what you guys focus on and uh, what your specialty is. Okay, well, Trowbridge Law Group is... Uh, an outgrowth of a lot of years. When I went to law school, Charles, when I was 45, and uh, I wanted something else to do in the, in the syndication and securities world other than raising money. So I said, well, I'll go to law school. And for the next, for the last 15 years of my career, because I was looking forward to retiring at 60, I'll be an attorney. Well, I turned 73 yesterday was my birthday. So I've been doing this now for 27 years and I thought I was gonna be doing it for 15. So uh, I started practicing on my own and over the years I've had several partnerships. This version of the law firm is myself and uh, Jonathan May, uh, my partner and there are six of us in the law firm, all virtual from, from Boston to San Diego to Sacramento to Nashville and LA. Very virtual. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's uh, Is that something just new with COVID or is it something that you guys did uh, or started well, I've before? I've always now? worked uh, pretty much out of my home office. And uh, for six or seven years, we had an office, a physical office down towards San Diego. And I'd go down there on Tuesday. And that partnership dissolved uh, about a year ago, April 23rd, in fact. And... Uh, uh, those of us who stayed together uh, with COVID all decided to work virtually. And I think we're going to stay, stay here. We're doing an awful lot of business and it seems to work. Uh, seems to work pretty well, Charles. Okay, great, great. So for syndicators, there's usually a few different, um, I think the normal ones, uh, I mean, we use for our firm is usually 506Bs and they have 506Cs and there's a few others. Can you kind of break down uh, for what you see for the two main uh, I guess you would consider those the two main kind of uh, ways well, that people are. raise money. They clearly are the two main uh, offering types. Uh, those are rules, <laughs> rules on how you raise money from people. 
And just as a little background, uh, the SEC comes out every year with a report of the previous 12 months of what's going on and uh, just research. And this last report that came out in March said that uh, 506B was responsible for about $1.8 trillion of money being raised in the private placement market. And 506C about uh, oh, 200 billion. So we're, we're talking almost $2 trillion of money raised in private placements to these two types. And that's, that's more than the new money that's raised on Wall Street in the same period of time. So it's huge. And you say you use 506B, which is the vast majority of offerings. And it's just the way that you can raise as much money as you want uh, from as many accredited investors as you can find and uh, up to 35 people who aren't accredited but are sophisticated and um, you can't advertise. So when you start your offering of a 506B, as you know, You've got your database, you've got your uh, Rolodex, whatever you use. When you start your offering, those are the people that you can raise money from because you have a pre-existing relationship with them. If you, want to go to 50, if you want to go to 506C, we can go and, uh, and uh, advertise and find investors that uh, we don't know. But the problem with 506C is that every investor has to be accredited and we have to do some third-party verification to prove that they're accredited. So it's a little more, it's a little more cumbersome. Most people is, just use five or six feet. Is the uh, is that the third-party verification? Is that really why you think a lot of people veer toward the five or six B mainly? Yes, yes, it really is. Um, for the most part, five or six B offerings generally only have accredited investors anyhow. Mm -hmm. And then there's just the check the box, uh, check the box uh, verification that they have in 506B because you know the person. You go to advertising and you have to go to the third party like a uh, oh, verify investor or some, mm -hmm. some website to have it done. And uh, that's complicated. Plus, Charles, if you've been taking investors in over, over time and they're used to checking the box, because they're accredited, they're not going to stand still for a uh, third-party mm -hmm. verification. They're just not going to want to do that. Right. And it's also if they have to reach out to their uh, CPA or something like that. And I think the letters are only like good for 90 days. Is that how it that's is? All, that's all it is, right? Although so, there's just been a brand new change in that rule, uh, just because that was a problem. The change is if you're doing a 506C and you do a third-party verification today, you do another 506C if you don't know of anything that would lead you to believe that that verification wouldn't be reissued or if the investor doesn't tell you that there's something that would mean that that verification would be reissued, you can use that same verification now for I think up to five years. Oh, okay. All right, so that makes so it- So that's a big change, but it has to be a third party. It has to be a third party verification, not your own verification. So one thing I think, uh, I mean, we could probably spend hours on it talking about it because it's uh, not, I guess, black letter law, I guess, as you would say, but the 
pre-existing relationship and you see it all over social media. Mm -hmm. uh, I get emailed it all the time and I go, who's this person? And I maybe signed up for their newsletter three years ago and, um, and all this stuff. And then, I mean, it's, it's from a lot of larger people too, that I see it from and um, people that I guess you would say have done deals before for many multiple years, mm -hmm. but how does one, I mean, we keep a CRM. We like, we put our stuff in uh, sure. HubSpot every time we reach out to someone, we talk to them every time they get an email, um, everything. And how, like, is it just that if, if I'm speaking to someone before I pretend, uh, uh, show them a deal, let's say, is it just something that um, I have an idea of what their finances are? I have an idea of what their risk tolerance is. Does that make that pre-existing relationship or there used to be that three touch rule, I guess, years no, back. No, there but... never was. A three oh, there never was. Okay. There never was. There was <laughs> a no action letter issued to one company who had three touches, but their touches were quite extensive and mm. involved. And the SEC said, well, if you do that, that's okay. Uh, and another rule we heard of was 30 days. Well, that, that was for one company who had a plan. Mm -hmm on what would happen in 30 days and that's okay. But those no action letters aren't broadly, uh, aren't broadly applicable. That doesn't mean in three touches, you can't uh, establish the right type of relationship, but that's not a safe harbor. It's not a, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's, you know, that's not going to do it. Um, here's the issue. The issue is in 506B, you can't advertise. So if someone, if something happens to a deal and someone comes to you or, or the SEC and you get sued, um, they may sue you by because you sold an unregistered security and, and you say, why would that be? Well, if you're not supposed to advertise, but you do, then you should have registered your security. So that's the claim they're gonna get. Oh, he sent me a postcard. I don't know who this guy was. I invested, but I didn't have a relationship. So the defense to that is pre-existing and substantive, okay? So pre-existing is pretty easy to form. Do you have some sort of a record keeping system to show that the person who invested in this deal was someone you had a pre-existing relationship um, in my world before you sign the fee agreement with the attorney who's gonna draft your documents? That that's kind of a bright line of dates pre-existing, but that doesn't mean anyone in your Rolodex or your your CRM prior to that is a substantive relationship. The SEC has uh, a definition for substantive, and it's whether uh, whether the sponsor has learned enough about the investor to number one know if if they're accredited, to number one know if they're sophisticated. And number, that's number two, right? And number three, to know if in fact their education and training would allow them to uh, read the documents and understand the deal. And I think the other part of that that isn't really in the rules is, does the investor have enough information about the sponsor mm -hmm. to know if they want to invest at the sponsor? Do they know about the track record? Do they know about, uh, do they generally invest in their own deals? So it's really a, a two-way street. And substantive is where you fall down, where a lot of people fall down. You know, I go to workshops and I, and I stand on the podium and people come up to me and take my card. And then two weeks later, I get a, a solicitation to buy their offering. <laughs> and I, you know, I, first of all, 
yeah, I'm glad you took my card and I'm glad you put me in the database, but we don't have a relationship that's uh, substantive. So it is, you know, there is specific language. There's no bright line rule, but there is specific language and you have to be careful. And I know about, God, I know about that happening all the time, Charles, just like you, it's crazy, you know? Yeah. And sometimes you have to just kind of, uh, you know, I message the person on the side directly. You don't want to do it like, you know, publicly and Hey, you know, just letting, you know, uh, maybe you just want to double check on this before you start advertising this or, yeah. you know, this is, <laughs> there's a lot well, of, you know, I'd love there. to do that. I could spend my whole day uh, <laughs> critiquing things that I get in the mail. Whoops. That I get in the mail. And uh, you know what the funny thing is, is, is everyone who's a syndicator is a tattletale. <laughs> they're always looking for, <laughs> there's always looking for a way that it can be better for them. Right. So if they see someone doing something, they just run to me and say, can you do that? I could spend my whole time critiquing people, but I, I just kind of ignore it. Yeah. And it, it makes sense that they don't have a, uh, a form guideline for the pre-existing relationship because first time I've spoken to investors, sometimes they tell you everything. And then right. sometimes, one touch. yeah. yeah. One touch might work. Yeah. One of my more prolific um, uh, clients um, always says 506Bs, but what he does is he has a nice website that's very generic and talks about what his company does, not mm -hmm. track record or anything. And if you're interested, you push a button and up pops a, a pre-qualification questionnaire mm -hmm. that you fill out the questionnaire and it's going toward, you know, when can he meet with you? When can he talk to you? Are you accredited? What's your experience? One page, kind of simple. Mm -hmm. And then you submit it and then he calls you. He doesn't put anyone in his database until after he's yep. called and then he had that pre-qualification conversation with the person. And both of those things together pretty much start the proof of a uh, pre-existing uh, substantive relationship. But, and he's rigid on that. So that's good for him. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Cause it's like, uh, we'll have a general mailing list that you can sign up online, which you're not going to get anything. You have to speak to me or to my mm -hmm. partner to actually get put on the list. So make sure that anybody that's, that's here, you have a very spend your time building the education and the content on your website and platforms. And then when you bring people to you, uh, you can speak to them and then vet them. And you, yeah. you want to vet them both ways. You don't, I mean, I wouldn't tell them that going into it, but uh, you know, you're vetting someone as well. You don't want someone that's investing the last $50,000 with you, nor should you no. allow that into your deal. So it's- No, it's and, and what is, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm gearing up for is, is the whole issue of sophisticated. Uh, depends upon what you're offering as to whether the investors is sophisticated. We're working on a, on a big offering on uh, racehorses. So if, you have, if you're smart enough to invest in the 50 unit apartment building, you're sophisticated, but are you sophisticated to invest in a racehorse fund? Oh. No. And just because you are sophisticated in, in the language of multifamily, a lot of my people are going to uh, mobile home parks and self-storage. Well, I think the investor has some, some responsibility of educating themselves. The sponsor will tell you about the deal, but the sponsor is not going to educate you about the industry. And there's millions of podcasts that you can find that you can listen to and join groups that will educate you on, on uh, uh, the asset class that mm -hmm. you want to invest in. I think that's important, don't you? 
Yeah, for sure. And uh, that's one thing I would not be a sophisticated investor with racehorses. So that's one thing. I don't even know where there's a racetrack. So, um, so I got, I got an interesting question yesterday from a potential investor and he was telling me about asking me how he would be able to 1031 into mm -hmm. a syndication potentially. And um, I told him it was, you know, it's a tenants in common and all this kind of stuff. And I sent him links to some articles. I think that were on your website. And um, could you kind of explain uh, how that would work if someone was coming, if they have mm -hmm. to be like properties, everything like that to go into, into a passive side of an investment? Well, you just said oh. it. I mean, you, you just said it, the word like, like kind. Uh, the 1031 rule says you can defer gain if you do the right type of transaction, which involves like kind. So you have a deed to a piece of real estate. You sell that, you now have money, and you use the money to buy a deed to a piece of real estate. That is like kind. You go from real estate to real estate. But if you sell your deed to real estate and buy units in an LLC, you don't own any real estate. You just have personal property. So it's not like kind. So it wouldn't qualify. So how do you get the deed? You get what I would call a fractional deed. I'm going to put together an offering and we're going to raise a million dollars with all these investors. And we're going to take title to a uh, 50% ownership in a property. And Charles, you're gonna come in with your million dollars and you're gonna take title to a 50% ownership of the property. So there'll be a, a deed, there'll be two people on the deeds and they'll take title to as tenants in common. And with, that's a common question, with all the money that people have made in real estate, thank God over the last yeah. six or seven years, if they're selling, they're wanting to see if there's a way to defer their gain. So we do a tenant in common deal, at least one every, every month. Every oh. month. Last month we did uh, three tenants in common and they raised $30 million collectively uh, to buy a huge project, right? And uh, it's, it's a little dicey, it, it's complicated because not only do you have the my side with all my investors, I'd have an LLC with an operating agreement and a PPM and all that. In your side, you probably own your real estate in an LLC. And so you have to take title to the new ownership in an LLC. Hmm. And then we have to have a tenant common agreement between the two of them. And it's interesting. It's complicated, but that's the only way it can be done because as you said, like kind, it's not like kind, it doesn't qualify. Uh, what do some of the groups that you, uh, some of your clients, do they have minimums that they have for 1031ing? I've spoke to one before and they said $1 million uh, would be the minimum. Do you see that with it because of all this? Now I've got another plate I've got to spin um, to get this all done at the right time as being the general partner. We have not instituted a minimum. Uh, we at the, at the attorney level haven't done that. And I have had conversations with clients about, you know, well, you know, he's only going to bring in $200,000. Just really, why don't you, uh, why doesn't he just uh, pay the taxes and move on? You know, but uh, that's up to the, that's up to the sponsor. But I, the problem with tenant in common, it's an absolutely terrible way to own property because everyone has a deed and one person can't force the other person to do what they don't want to uh, lease to someone they don't want, to refinance, to sell, uh, to do capital improvements. It's, it's, 
you know, if there was a 1% tenant in common, they'd have veto rights over everything. And so you have to have clauses about what do you do if someone wants to do something and the other person says, no, you got to have a, uh, a deadlock provision. Whoa. Interesting. So, uh, so with, with us, uh, our listeners on the podcast, about 40% of them are international and we have some uh, oh, listening and stuff like this. And what, um, if someone, a syndicator is looking to accept money from a foreign investors, what is, what should they keep in mind uh, when doing mm-hmm. so that might be over and above a, uh, just accepting money from another U S person or entity? Sure. Well, let's say a lady walks up to you at the bag and it's got a million dollars of cash. And she says, I want to invest in your deal. And she happens to be from Mexico, not a US citizen. Don't do that. Don't take that. Take that lady right down to the bank and have that lady open a bank account. And she's probably gonna open it either in a, in a corporate or an LLC uh, entity. And she's going to uh, get a tax ID number and she's going to deposit the money in that bank. Okay. Hmm. Now you've got yourself a U.S. person with a tax ID number and an entity and go ahead and take them. So what do your people, when your international investors come to you, they just don't come to you just on their own. They've already been told the type of entity depending upon their country the type of entity that they should set up here and they can fund it and then they can invest with you. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. I would, <laughs> yeah. Never take money from uh, a non us. Well, obviously never taking from cash. anyone. Yeah. But because uh, you know, you're responsible, Charles, you're responsible mm-hmm. for making sure it's not drug money. Yeah. You're responsible for making sure it's not the, um, it's not a person from a, a terrorist company and you're responsible for finding out if they're on the terrorist watch list. Well, why don't you let Chase do that? And Chase is going to go through all that stuff and uh, vet all that money and vet the person, get them a tax ID number, and now they can invest uh, with you in Southern California. Uh, we have all sorts of people who come, Asians, who come over here and send their kids to school, go to college here, University of California, Irvine. And uh, they all open an LLC. They fund the LLC with the money to pay for the uh, tuition and pay the room and board and rent and everything. And then they additionally fund it to go ahead and buy and, and invest in our, our LLCs that our clients have. So that's that's scary, but so my advice is just make sure you're dealing with the U.S. person. Okay, interesting, great advice. So, what are some common pitfalls that have you seen from syndicators that uh, they find themselves in when raising or when finalizing a syndication deal that may be common? Well, I think the most common pitfall I'm finding today, and I've been I've been posting and uh, on my Facebook post is is about making distributions when the property didn't earn the money, you know, and I know that there are gurus out there who are telling people, okay, we're just going to, this is how you do it. Everyone, every investor wants a check. So when you raise some money for the fund, raise another hundred or $200,000 and put it in the bank. And while you're doing the value add time, you can just send people a check. What out of their money. Okay. First of all, you have to be very, I think you're, I think 
it, I think it's fraudulent, first of all, because if you're sending someone a 6% cash on cash return, that had to be earned by the property. Now, I don't have problems sending someone their money back as long as you tell them you're sending their money back, but I'm not exactly sure uh, that they would want to fund that extra just to get the check back. And the most recent one I saw was uh, someone called me and said they were looking at an, a, a PPM and the PPM said, if we can't start our cash flow from earnings soon enough, we're gonna go out and sell more interests oh. to new investors. And when that money comes in, we're gonna use that money to pay. Did you know that Bernie Madoff died recently? Did you hear that? He no, died in February and they're just purporting, they're just purporting it today that he's dead. The oh, king wow. of Ponzi. Well, what that was explained to me was a Ponzi scheme. You sell money to new investors so you can pay returns and they're not returns, they're just checks. And that's fraudulent. And the person said, well, you know, the everyone agreed to it. Well, you can't agree to a, a criminal act. It's, yeah. You have to be careful. So I'm all over that. I think that's a mistake. When you, when you look at the operating statement, the, the balance sheet, the income statement from the property, and you go down to see how much cash there is, and you find that's not enough cash to make the distributions that have been made, that's a red flag. Yeah. So that's my current, my current uh, comment. Um, one of the things I, I could talk to you about is when you close down an LLC, you sell the property and you close it. I don't know what you do and what advice you get, but you have to go to the state and you have to retire, whatever they call it, the LLC. So you don't have to file income taxes and reports in current years. So if I were gonna close a fund now, I'd wanna go and look at do I really want to close it out with the state and the IRS and everything this year? Um, what if something happens? I mean, we're already in April, almost in May. What if something happens six or seven, eight months from now and someone comes back and sues and that LLC is closed? Uh, many of my clients keep the LLC um, open another year. Hmm. So they have the liability protection of having an LLC. Well, that means they're gonna to have to have file another tax return in California here. They're gonna to have to pay another $800. But I think they're, depending upon what you have, if you've done a lot of construction work, I definitely keep the LLC open for another year. If it's, you know, if it's a wall, if it's a Walgreens and it's a single tenant net lease, nothing's going to happen. So you might as well go ahead and close it. But I think, I think closing the LLC too early just to save some fees is, is, could, could be a mistake. What do you think? Yeah, that's a, that, yeah. Cause if you have, I don't know what the statute of limitations would be on that. I mean, you're, I guess it would be like four or five years, but you're just adding on one more year. I imagine you'd flush out a lot of chances of uh, possibility of litigation by having it right. that extra year 
That's a great, that makes perfect sense. I never yeah. thought of that uh, per se. So I have personally left open businesses that um, maybe I've sold a website or something like that. And I've left the LLC open. I have one right now that has no business that I'm leaving open for another two years. Um, okay. So you it's never just, know. you I just, it's, it's what it is. You know what I mean? And um, it's uh, been a couple of years since it's just, I just told my accountant and he's okay, whatever you like to do. You know what I mean? It's cheap insurance, right? So well, I learned, I learned the hard way on one thing. When I was a syndicator, we sold a property on an, an installment sale. Hmm. So they gave us X number of dollars and then they were going to give us the balance in two years. And so I distributed everything, but I realized that I needed to keep the entity open so I could collect the payment in two years and then distribute it to everyone. Well, I didn't have any money to pay the $800 and to pay the tax return and everything. That came out of my pocket because I did. I distributed everything, closed out the bank account. Uh, and then so I talked to my CPA, what would I have, uh, what would I have done? I could have closed everything out and made that note that I carried back <clears throat> a note that's owned, that would have been owned by all the investors, but multiple beneficiaries, okay. closed out the deal. And when the payment came, open a little account, get the money and send it to all the beneficiaries, but the LLC would have been done. So I learned that if you keep that stuff open, you have an ongoing expense. So Anyone who's taking our advice and say, well, let's keep that LLC open after the, uh, the property sells, you might want to withhold, you know, five or six, $10,000 and tell people at the end of uh, uh, the end of 2020, we'll make the final distribution. That's fantastic advice. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so when should a syndicator contact you to start the process if they are uh, actively looking to uh, syndicate a property? Mm -hmm. Well, I get a lot of calls, Charles, that I call homework calls. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm thinking of looking at properties. What am I going to do? What should I do? And I love that call because I, I can educate them. I'm, I'm an educator. Education-based marketing has always been my work, but I'm an educator and I want to mentor and I want to help people do this and do it right. Okay, let's keep it legal and do it right. So I get those homework calls. I always tell the people, if you can, call me when you sign the LOI. The LOI assigned both sides. And um, this kind of goes into the securities law a little bit. You know, you this pre-existing condition has to be pre-existing to what? To an offering or the contemplation of an offering. Hmm. Well, the LOI isn't an offering. You don't know if you're gonna go into purchase and sale. You don't know if you're going to actually just wholesale the property. Or you're going to keep it yourself. You don't know. So that's not the start of the syndication. But call me and we can start doing stuff. And I'm going to get to the punchline in a minute. I don't think the purchase and sale agreement is actually the start of an offering either. Because once again, it could fall out. You could keep the property. You could wholesale it. You, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But I'm sure that when you sign a fee agreement with me, you're contemplating this indication. So there's a bunch of stuff I could do ahead of time to help us so that when we sign that fee agreement, we're ready to go. And one of the things that my firm does in our fee agreements, Charles, is we put a clause in there because I want people to sign up with me right away as soon as we can so we can get started. 
we put a clause in there that if that this fee agreement is for this property or some other property. So if this property dies a miserable death in, in due diligence, I've got your money because I get paid up front. I've done half the work. Now we're just going to put the stops, put the brakes on everything, find another property. I'll pick up where I left off and you're not out your money. Not every law firm does that. Now, some law firms won't try to collect all the money up front. They'll wait till the deal closes. And I'm not a contingency law firm. I'm not going to do all the work and hope that I get paid based on your ability to raise the money and close the deal. Right. Okay. So I don't do it that way. And I've always been a flat fee, flat fee law firm. I just charge a fee and I don't keep track of hours and you can call me as much as you want. And my fee carries on six months after the deal closes in case we've got oh. stuff to do. So I try to make it easy for the first timers to get into business. Interesting. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your firm? Where can they find you? Okay. Well, behind me, my email address, gene at uh, trowbridgelawgroup.com. We have a pretty good website. You can go to my website and you can actually sign up for a free consultation. Everyone gives free consultations, but that's, that's where you can sign up. And um, we have a pretty good YouTube channel where we've got a lot of interviews of uh, people that uh, are in the business. Um, and we post those on our YouTube channel. You can always just uh, give me a call and uh, the number's there and we're all set. Okay. I will make sure that all that information is in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, you're welcome, Charles. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.